welcome to the Super Jump Podcast. Really quick Q&A. Q number one. What is this episode? A number one. Thank you for asking. That's very polite. You see, we are not back in the strict sense, but I have a few interviews lined up that I think are relevant to the interests of, or at least potentially, the interests of the listeners of this show. They are video games adjacent, we can say. This particular episode is an interview with the hosts of the podcast, the Hop Ons Podcast. They are a podcast that, over the last few years, has covered individually every episode of the TV shows Arrested Development and Twin Peaks, which is a very fun combination of things to think about. We do, a little bit in the interview, talk about video games and video games' relationship, or possible relationships, to those shows. That said, it is a little bit different from what we normally do, so if you want to skip this one, I get you. Also, cue number two. Why do you sound so slow and tired during the show? A number two. I don't know. I was listening back to the audio as I was editing it, and I was thinking... What am I on, Quaaludes or something? This seems like a very slow version of me, a a much more stuttery version, and I already am kind of stuttery, so that's impressive. Uh, I apologize for that, I don't know. But I think you'll enjoy this episode. It was a lot of fun to record, and it was a lot of fun to talk to both Colin and John. I'm going to take it away right now and give it to Past Mitchell. Hello and welcome to the Super Jump Podcast, my guests... Today, I am very excited to have on. They are the co-hosts of the Hop-Ons podcast, a podcast where they have been watching episodes of a TV show week after week for a very long time now. Uh, They started with Arrested Development, and they've been through all five seasons of that, and now have finished their second show, Twin Peaks. So I am happy to introduce to the podcast Colin Cox and Jonathan Phelps. How are you both? Hello. Uh, we're great. Thank you so much for having us. I spoke for Colin, as I am likely to do several times. No. Hi. Hello. Yes. I'm Colin. It's If you don't know us, sinking voices can be tricky sometimes. So yes, I'm Colin. He's John. Mitchell, thank you for having us. No problem. I am, again, I'm just so excited to have you both. I've been listening probably since, I think, the third season of Arrested Development. Something like oh, that. Wow. Oh, wow. Oh, man. Thank, wow, thank you. That's very flattering. I don't even listen to us that much, so I truly <laughs> Oh, well, I never listen to my own stuff. <laughs> like, I, I think you have an out. Uh, I, I can't stand to hear my own voice, especially when I'm just, you know, free balling a conversation. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, Mitchell, yeah. I have to tell you, though, because I, I, again, I mentioned this before we started, that I listened to a bit of this podcast as preparation and research. You have a fantastic radio voice. I don't think you should be offended at all or, or, or have any trepidation about hearing yourself speak. You have an excellent voice. Well, thank you so much, Colin Cox. I think you both also have fantastic radio voices. <laughs> uh, I, that's very nice coming from I, I, my fucking hick uh, Appalachian <laughs> accent sort of. Uh, well, local through, radio, I don't know. I, I, oh, there you go, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, but everyone loves your voice, though, John. Like, anytime people, so anytime yeah. everyone, everyone has nothing but complimentary things to say about your your 
southern accent so yeah no that's that's definitely true like if you want to apply to a job at cnn reading the news for the nation like i don't know if you'll get it but <laughs> if you want to read an audiobook of huckleberry finn i'm really into that i'll i'll, I'll totally buy that audiobook I love this. Make sure you, anytime you have someone on your podcast, make sure that you just ream them real good at the beginning and get that out of the way so that we can move forward. No, thank you. Thank you. Well, in any case, you, sorry, you just finished Twin Peaks. You got your last episode of Twin Peaks out of the way. Uh, do you feel, whenever you feel finish a, a show, and you've done this twice now, do you feel like you have a weight lifted off your view, or are you more m- maybe sad to see it go? How's that emotionally? Uh, I, I think, for me, definitely I'm, I'm a lot happier now that we don't have to do Twin Peaks, because it was just, it was grating on me. It's, it's uh, doing an hour-long episode of television, is really hard, especially when you want to watch it at like two times and you're working. And my my commute's like an hour each way, so it's a lot of, of time. I'm happy this is done. Uh, um, I really enjoy doing it. And uh, in the future, I think what we're going to do next, we haven't discussed yet publicly, but I think will be a lot less taxing on me. So I'm I'm this is a weight off my shoulders. Colin, how about you, buddy? No, I think I would completely agree because one of the things we like to do is to have as thorough a conversation as possible without just summarizing the plot. Who wants that, right? You can just read an IMDb plot summary if you if you want to know the plot of an episode. And we like to talk about thematic conceits. We like to talk about cinematography. We like to talk about larger overarching narratives. And it's hard to do that if you just watch an episode once. And if an episode of television is 50 to 60 minutes, you're, you're right. Just the, the time constraint is extremely tricky. But what also makes... Twin Peaks particularly tricky is David Lynch is a challenging filmmaker at times. And with The Return in particular, if you are not comfortable just saying, I'm not entirely sure what that means, but I trust it will mean something at some point, then you'll you'll find doing a show like Twin Peaks particularly frustrating and challenging. But Mitchell... The funny thing with Arrested Development, though, because and and I, John and I both at times said complimentary things about seasons four and five, but there was a obvious depreciation of value after maybe season yeah, two or or course. at some point in season three. So as we were watching Arrested Development, my God, it was it was like watching a pet slowly die or something <laughs> because it just wasn't what it was, and and there were these moments these glimpses of something that existed in the past but it was just obviously different and with twin peaks it was it was a fundamentally different situation where some of the episodes in the return are i would argue at least some of the best episodes of twin peaks so you are right it it it, it does feel liberating in some way but it also really depends on the show right is it a show that again depreciates in value as it reaches the end or is it a show like the return that really seems to crescendo at the end i i think that's a great point because for me personally i i share a lot of the same opinions of um twin peaks the return being being a very very good revival of a show and the netflix seasons of arrested development maybe not being and that's not a hot take that's oh sure yeah, yeah. no <laughs> yeah that's pretty common along uh internet commenters of the shows um 
season four of Arrested Development, I remember at the time quite enjoying, for, for different reasons than I liked the original show, kind of feeling that it was a puzzle box of trying to figure out just how it all went together. Um, and then the the answer to the puzzle box when you solve it is you'll find out what the answer is in season five. So that was like really <laughs> exciting. <laughs> Very satisfying. Yeah, um, that was like the most taxing bit of television that I think <laughs> there there were moments when I, I was like, maybe I'll call Colin and just say we had fun, but maybe we should just pack it up because <laughs> I can't watch any more of season four of this show. But uh, yeah, I think uh, um, definitely Arrested Development, I had more fun probably doing, but I wanted really to do Twin Peaks. I had to convince Colin to do Twin Peaks because I thought he would be able to uh as as someone who's a literary scholar like dive really deep into it and he did and he did a fantastic job and so that's really why i like doing twin peaks the most i think no i would agree with that and it's it's interesting john because we talked about this when we talked about arrested development in season four episode two of the original iteration of season four is so bad it's Remind it's me really what hard to it? find what? Oh, that's the that's the George centric episode. Yeah, it's it's maybe George one of the Senior worst episodes. Oh, yeah. with the the smoke room, the yes. the sauna. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. The 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 smoke and squeeze. No, it's the it's not that smoke and sweat squeeze. and squeeze. Sweat and squeeze. Sweat and squeeze. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's. I mean, it's with a pun like that. How could it be bad? Exactly. I know. <laughs> and it's not just one of the worst episodes of Arrested Development. It's one of the worst, most tedious episodes of television I've ever watched. It was, I mean, John, that was maybe the shortest episode we've ever done. I think we spoke about that episode for maybe 40 minutes. We just did not want to talk about it. And the season got better. Like the maybe episodes were really good. A lot of the stuff with Michael at the end was really good. But when you... Uh, when you start and then stutter the way it did at the beginning, it's really hard to recover. But John, I think you and I, and correct me if you if, if you think I'm wrong, after watching Fateful Consequences, the remix, yeah. we actually concluded that we liked the original better because at least it was doing something conceptually interesting. Yeah, yeah, we did. And it gave a lot more time to character arcs than Fateful Consequences did. So I think that's why I liked it more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I would personally agree with that take too. Um, Faithful Consequences is at least easier to watch, but at what cost? Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> because at times it 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 does feel like someone's trying to uh, like someone's trying to fit a square peg into a round hole uh, because of just even if you think about how Hurwitz clearly tried to. Uh, reinsert those those bumpers at the end of the credits well in some cases those bumpers were relevant bits of plot information but we talked about how especially in the first three seasons it's impossible to know if the bumpers are canon or not but then when you arrive at fateful consequences the bumpers are obviously canon and that's because he was taking something or he took something in a completely different narrative format and then repurposed it and it's just yeah those kinds of those kinds of inconsistencies were extremely frustrating. Mm, yeah. Season five of Arrested Development came out while you were doing the show, almost right mm -hmm. before you needed to do season five. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was yeah. it was convenient. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what was your original 
strategy with this show? Did you think that season five would even happen when you were starting that? And like, what would have happened if you get to the end of season four and then you're just ending the show on that note? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, what a question. Um, uh, mm-hmm. I think as as we were watching it, they had announced. I mean, maybe they announced Faithful Consequences as we were doing season four, or it was yeah I think in the middle right. of of coming out, and then they announced five like right towards the end. Yeah, so I think um, uh, I think ultimately I was happy because season four just ends in such like a weird, mysterious note that. Uh, uh, much like a, a Lynchian show, maybe uh, that it, it would end there and be like, whatever. We who cares? That's all you get. But with this, they actually uh, fulfilled the narrative, and I was very happy about that. And I also wanted to see, uh, knowing that they were going to have more time with like actual cast members being together in season five versus season four. I was very excited about that. So uh, yeah, it, it was great. I was I was happy they did it. I would completely agree with what John said in particular about how. But now thinking about it, Mitchell, I almost wish season five didn't happen because of just the the sense of continuity within our podcast that the return <laughs> ends the way it does and season four ends the way it does because they are frighteningly similar endings. Um, but the I think John's right. There was this promise with season five that it would do Arrested Development the right way. You know, it's it's like, make Arrested Development great again, and, and we see what <laughs> happened, which is, it was just, it was really just a hot mess. There were some good parts, but it was something of a hot mess. So I, yeah, I think there was a lot of promise. And John, what you said in particular about returning to uh, a distinct formula, it's it's something that people who like Arrested Development, I think they really bought into that idea, right? Once we get everyone back together, everything will be fine. But then when you watch the season, it wasn't actually everyone back together. Portia Durazi wasn't really in, excuse me, Portia Durazi wasn't really in the season at all. And we've talked about how Tobias without Lindsay, he's just not that interesting at all. Yeah, so he's insufferable. Yeah, he's really yeah. bad. Yeah. So no, even the promise a of what character that you have to watch yeah, exists. He really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he really is. So so even the promise of what season 5 would be was something of a false promise because it was never it 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 never had any intention of being that. Yeah, there there's obviously some things that after we by the way, uh listeners out there, we're going to talk about potential spoilerish things for both sure. Arrested Development and Twin Peaks. Uh, cannot be avoided that said uh when season four ends you have the mystery of what happened to lucille too and i wanted to know i i against all of my better judgment was actually invested in that idea of <laughs> like i sure. wanted to know i uh and season five did that in the very very last moments of the entire series <laughs> In a uh, a brutalistic way of, of yeah. <laughs> telling you who did it, um, it, having having seen that, and having the knowledge now that that is sort of the entirety of what four and five seasons four and five were leading toward. Do you still feel like you, you spent a good amount of time, like like? doing a good thing with that part of the right, se- right. Uh, series or huh. would you have revoked your time after season three with that knowledge if you were to Colin, go back and do it again go ahead buddy because i have a lot to say about this so you go first so mitchell i 
I, I just want to make sure I understand the question correctly. Are you asking us, would 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 we have preferred to stop the podcast after season three, or if we were Hurowitz, to just not revive the show at all? Oh. Uh, well, I just meant maybe you move on to Twin Peaks earlier, but... Uh, oh, I see. Okay, okay. Like yeah, after um, season three of Arrested Development instead, but the Hurowitz yeah. question is good too. Yeah, I... I have no idea. <laughs> I really like the way season three ends, and maybe I said the complete opposite, I don't know, but I <laughs> I like this idea of Michael leaving, but then immediately, and this is in the bumpers because we know that George Sr., he's in the he's in the yacht, he's just pulled back immediately. So I I like that as just an idea, right? And and I think Hurwitz tries to get there a little at the end of season five as Michael leaves. And we talked about how even the cinematography, I think he's driving left with George Michael, which yeah. in 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 film, always pay attention to times when characters are moving left because it suggests regression. So he, he basically does at the end of season five what he did at the end of season three, but I just don't like... A part of me almost wishes, yeah, maybe we did move on from Arrested <laughs> Development, but I, I don't know how we how we could have, right? Because because it's it's interesting how seasons four and five, it just does the work of reinforcing the thematic conceit of the show, which is this is a show about about repetition and this is a show about not progressing. And that's a lot of hours to just basically arrive at the same point. So yeah, I, I, I think maybe, yeah, maybe. John, I, I think for me, uh, uh, I really enjoyed uh, it. It was it was a moot point ultimately, but I really enjoyed the little things that Hurwitz did to try to trick us into who killed Lucille or what happened there, and coming up with this this narrative. I spent a lot of time doing that in the podcast, uh, coming up with who who killed Lucille, what's going on with Lucille, and then ultimately, you know, it was just it was just Buster at the end. It who, was just Buster who's just gone like. <laughs> off the deep end. But for a long time, you know, I had all these all these ideas and I think I really enjoyed watching those seasons because of that. Not to say they were great storytelling or great television, but I enjoyed that. I mean, I'm glad we did it, but I think I I don't I don't regret it. I don't think I would like to have moved on uh, uh earlier. I I think I had a good time doing that. It was it was great podcasting because I was very mad for <laughs> most of those episodes. Uh but yeah, it was it was a good time and and I think ultimately Hurwitz is a good storyteller and and narratively uh he did a lot of interesting things there, but it just ended the worst way it could end. And I think that's that's my issue with it. I remember an interview with uh the creators of BoJack Horseman at one point, mm. uh, immediately following the 2016 election, uh, where if, if you're not American, you might not immediately have the the connection that Trump won that one. It was important. <laughs> uh, but the Bojack Horseman people uh, basically said that for the first part of the show, they were criticizing, you know, mildly hypocritical Ill liberal elite types. And then mm -hmm. that happened and they realized like, oh, we actually probably have as showrunners of a thing, some sort of responsibility to go after more real evils in the world. Mm. Um, and something about uh, the way Buster was treated, especially in season five, but also four, um, 
sort of sort of felt like that to me a little bit where you have this this uh the bluth family they've been shitty and bad and and like morally wrong for sure uh for three seasons already and in the lore of the show you know 40 years probably previous to that uh and then you it, it might obfuscate the fact that like there's this real actual very very bad thing happening in the buster side of the family that's been funny and we've sort of been lumping it with in the other funny things but now you actually have to look at it uh which i think is interesting but mm-hmm. not a sitcom <laughs> uh so i <laughs> well but I arrested development stopped that. being well but arrested development stopped being a sitcom after season three though Right. It's it's not it's it's Hurwitz can say whatever he wants about because just because a show's 22 minutes doesn't make it a sitcom. And and I think that's that's also important as well. But that's that's a really interesting point, Mitchell, about how because John and I have talked about and Hurwitz was quite quite candid about this, that the Bluth family, at least when he initially conceptualized the family in the show, was a critique of of the Bushes. But I think it's 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 more appropriate to imagine that he was actually offering a critique of the Trumps long before the Trumps became, you know, political figures. And that's why that's why I agree with your point. In particular, that example you made about Bojack Horseman, but I think there was always this sense that what the blues represent, it's not it's not necessarily like critiquing them is frivolous, because I don't see how you disassociate what Buster is from what the blues are. This is something if you've read and, and take it for what it's worth, if you've read Mary Trump's memoir about Donald Trump, her uncle, her point is you you can't talk about Donald Trump without talking about Fred Trump. You just can't because they're so intimately connected and intertwined with one another. And if you want to critique the the sins and mistakes of Donald Trump, you really need to think about how Fred Trump created the conditions for all of that to happen. And that's that's perhaps how I think about the blues in relation to Buster. It's it's you're 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 absolutely right. And the show did a wonderful job of of foreshadowing Buster's violence, but that violence it's 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 produced by this family i suppose if that makes any sense yeah definitely i th- i think so too um if if the bluths are bushes in seasons 1 through 3 and in season 5 after the election they're trumps uh i i think that makes a lot of sense to show the progression of that thing e- even I mean, I'm I'm personally not a fan of either of those families, but sure. <laughs> I think that there's maybe a, a current understanding in um, cultures within America that are left of center that the Trump family is this very immediate evil, and the the Bush family were like maybe used as a tool. Um, yeah. I I don't know how much I buy into that narrative or not, but it's it's what I it would is. agree with you. Yeah. Showing showing the progression happen by way of the middle part, which in season four, I don't know if they're Trumps yet, because although there is the thing about building the wall that that was 2013, you know, I, I don't I don't mm-hmm. really know if that would have specifically felt like a reference. It felt more to me like they were just 
I, at that time, I guess Kardashians, something. Oh, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Where they yeah. were less, uh, had less agency and, and just more, <laughs> just just felt like more of a thing somehow because they had to exist because the world made them exist. Um, but that's that's a whole different conversation. Uh, I want to start talking <laughs> about Twin Peaks. <laughs> um, so, so, John, you said that you pressured Colin into Twin Peaks after Arrested Development. It's a very different kind of show. Yeah, uh, I really wanted a show that Colin could um, really just go wild on because Colin likes to just analyze everything. And so initially Colin was like, well, let's do Parks and Rec. And I think I had already like come to this conclusion that we did a sitcom and I was like not really wanting to do a sitcom again or a comedy show. And that was the first show that I thought of was Twin Peaks and... Uh, the return, I think, was just about to happen, or had just happened, and I said, there's a lot of content out there, and I think I had just maybe bought, like, Firewalk with me on Criterion, so, like, I was in that mindset, and, yeah, I pitched it to him, and and, and luckily, it, it worked out well. I think he did a fantastic job with it. Well, but also, you didn't need to do that much arm twisting. I think I... No, because true. we were... Yeah, yeah, we were talking, and I, I'm glad we didn't do Parks and Recreation, by the way. I've really... I've really um, soured on that show. We don't need to talk about that. But I, <laughs> I know you you mentioned because I hadn't watched Twin Peaks. I think I had watched a bit of season one, and I like David Lynch. And you mentioned it, and we just agreed to do it. And and I think you're right. But one of the things that John's right that he he definitely pitched a show that allowed the podcast to move in different directions, but he also. He also pitched a show that would allow him to be funny with his commentary in unique ways because it's not hard to to be funny when talking about arrested development. I think it's a lot harder to be funny talking about Twin Peaks. <laughs> and and I think that's that's something that we needed as well. Is there a way that we can talk about something that's that's interesting and perhaps has a more analytical focus, but also allows someone like John to be funny in different ways. But it's also a show that allowed this dynamic that I like in our podcast, where John is is quite reticent to acknowledge that he liked something. And it's not a situation <laughs> where I convince him, but it's actually a situation where we where we pull on one another. And and because because I and I've told John this before, I reject this narrative that that he constructs that he doesn't like something, I like it, and I convince him that I'm right. It's it's we actually create this tension within the show where we're pulling one another in different directions. And that's something we didn't always have with Arrested Development because we just agreed a lot with Arrested Development, but we didn't agree a lot with Twin Peaks. And that's that's a dynamic that I really like because I think that's the kind of space where different sorts of conversations can happen, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you think that David Lynch if told, hey, here's this thing, you got to listen to it. And he was given a pair of earbuds at like a convention or something. And it was your podcast. <laughs> what would he get out of it? Do you oh, think that oh he, like listening to theories or uh, like any kind of attempted deconstruction of the show? Do you yeah, think he cares about that at all? I can't tell with that guy. That's yeah. exactly, Mitchell. Thank you. <laughs> because Colin and I have always had this, 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 Colin thinks that things are deliberately done 
by David well, Lynch. And I think that David Lynch is just a confused old man sometimes. <laughs> who does well, I think he could be both. Things. So, yeah. And, and I think that when you try to give him something, like you say, oh, they're deconstructing your Judy or whatever, you know, you give him that. He would just say, oh, that's nice. And that's all he would do because Rob, uh, Rob who's a friend of the pod, we've we've talked about. He has shown us clips of like David Lynch being asked questions and this guy going into this extreme detail and then at the end saying, did I get that right? And David Lynch is going, nope. <laughs> that's it. And I feel like that's how he would be with us. But uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he'd enjoy it. I hope he would. Yeah, I I really want to know his take on my impression. But aside from that, Mitchell, I like my whole thing with David Lynch is I think he has a plan insofar as all of us have a plan, which is to say we don't really have a plan. So I I think he does do things deliberately, but <laughs> sorry. But but I also think and and I think this is something you can see when people when 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 John's right, when people pitch him these elaborate theories and he just says, nope, didn't get it, because I, I think he acknowledges that that he maybe doesn't really know. And I mentioned this on the podcast before. There's this Canadian academic named Jordan Peterson who's just extremely vile. But he did a whole seminar. This has been years ago, I think, before he became extremely popular. He did a whole seminar, a whole, a whole lecture on Lynch's Mulholland Drive. And he had some interesting things to say about it, but he ultimately concluded that – Lynch, he's he's deliberately deploying psychoanalytic principles, which makes him an ideologue, which makes the film bad, which assumes that, again, that that Lynch is in complete control of everything he's doing. And I just don't think that's true. I think, yeah, they're like John and I have talked about the use of special effects in the return. And I do think he's after something deliberate with the way he chooses to make some sequences look spectacular and other sequences look just like hot garbage. I don't necessarily know what that is, but to then extrapolate from there that everything has this big, large, all-encompassing plan, I think that just misses the point about Lynch and... And I think he gets that about himself because even when people talk about Mark Frost, they talk about how Frost is this controlling agent. And I just don't know if that's true. I again, I just I'm I'm committed to this idea that Lynch maybe doesn't fully understand everything he does, and he at least knows that about himself, if that makes any sense. It does. I, I just don't I just don't know. <laughs> like Okay. Uh, I, I totally get what both of you are saying, but at the yeah. same time, like at the, the the last scene in the last episode of Return, where yeah. Laura the Bizarro universe version of Laura Palmer knocks on the door and the the woman who answers gives well, it's a whole thing. But she says yep. two last names that were like important way earlier in the show and i'm mm-hmm. like at that point supposed to think that it's not like connected like that's a that's a yeah. clear call out for something i don't know yeah. what it means but like it, it meant something to someone um <laughs> uh and that's that's been my life for the last fucking <laughs> the last 18 weeks has just been what is happening and and i i agree with I, I agree with both of you. I think that uh, uh, ultimately Lynch makes a lot of decisions uh, where he deliberately is ambiguous, given the fact that the return has at least ten plot 
lines that never get fucking closed up. So you go, well, I guess that's the end of that thing. And and maybe that's on purpose. It has to be, I, I assume. But I also agree with you, Mitchell, that he's if, he, if you're bringing things back from early on in a season, it obviously had weight and meant something to to someone and it's confusing and i think i think in that case the return to me is a bit of a mess but i do appreciate uh a lot of what is it's going for i guess mm-hmm. yeah i i i think both arrested development and twin peaks um and, and this is this is probably at, at least part of why i i latched onto your show i i think as much as i did uh they're just like my favorite shows probably um probably my two favorite shows and i i just don't think that any of the criticism against them is wrong though at the same time sure i i'm like very very ready to agree with like any slam against twin peaks or arrested development uh just because of the way they are and i think that part of that um dichotomy of interest that i think you have to have with those two shows too it's not like I love every part of Arrested Development. It's like, if you like every part, I don't know if you were watching, because that's that's crazy. <laughs> you can like the parts I don't like and not like the parts I do, but like there, there's still got to be a, some contradiction in there because sure. of how it is. Um, but specifically, uh, John, you were you were disappointed in the ending of Twin Peaks The Return. I was, yeah. Uh, and, and ultimately, I think it just comes down to uh, it, it's it's very 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 open ended, as if Lynch is gonna make another season, even though we know he won't. And I think that was my biggest my biggest uh, uh, takeaway from that is that I really wanted him to at least close something. I I do like the the fact that uh, we got to see the, the downfall of Cooper in a way where where Cooper's own hubris sort of hindered him at the end. And made and messed everything up, and I thought that was great. And Colin and I talked a lot about that. But I think I think ultimately Lynch just making uh, more storylines in the last episode is something that should not be done in a finale, at least a traditional finale. And I know Colin's going to talk about subversion and all that, but that's just <laughs> that's how I feel about it. Well, I mean, I think this is what's interesting, Mitchell, is what I think maybe not the only thing, but the most important thing. Arrested Development and Twin Peaks shares is this critique of Michael Bluth, Dale Cooper figures and and how within, in particular, the Western canon, characters like Cooper, characters like Michael, they are our heroes, unambiguously so. If you think about the Joseph Campbell monomyth, for example, that, that, that particular understanding of how narrative works and who the heroes and villains are celebrates the Coopers and the Michael Blues of the world. And both of these shows, and and listen, John, I completely agree with you. Lynch does not necessarily end all of the relevant plot points, but what I do think he offers, what I do think ends Twin Peaks is, is this unambiguous button or this, this period on this sentence, which says Dale Cooper is not your hero. And, that's something I like about it because I do think he gives us that. I, I I think he gives us that. And you could argue perhaps he takes too long to make that point, and perhaps he does. But 
he at least gives us that. Do I know what this little pocket universe is? No, not necessarily. Do I understand who Carrie Page is? Maybe not entirely. Do I even understand what all of these references to Tremont and Chalfont mean? Not necessarily. Yeah, those but are the ones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you think about that as just window dressing for this for this larger thematic point about a character like Cooper, it's not. I don't have such a problem with it because you're you're right, Mitchell. People can write, and they have, and they will continue to write volumes about how this reference to Tremont in Part 18 actually connects to this one deleted scene from Fire Walk with Me, which connects to the European version of the pilot <laughs> that was released in conjunction with with season one of Twin Peaks, and and all of that's fine, but. I, I think it's it's just that's that's maybe what missing the forest for the trees. I don't know how that metaphor works, but yeah, it's missing the forest for the trees. But like, if the guy who made the forest explicitly on purpose put some trees right in front of it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like in in order to make you miss yeah. it for the trees, <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, I, I I think that's listen. I I think that's I think that's a fair critique, and and I think that's that's perhaps where I find this this point about Lynch not, you know, fully understanding everything he does, which which if if and I don't like binaries, but hell, if you give me a binary between someone who uh, a creative person like David Lynch, who at least acknowledges to some degree that he doesn't fully understand what he does, and then you have someone like Darren Aronofsky on the other side who will laboriously explain to you what mother means, and he gets to the <laughs> end and you think, well, that's stupid. I didn't like that at all. Like, you totally didn't understand what you made. I'll I'll take Lynch and his ambiguity every time. I think that's a fair trade-off. Both shows... In, in addition to having that thing you were talking about where you have this fallen hero archetype of uh, of Michael Bluth and Dale Cooper, um, seemingly, you know, the, the, the perfect handhold in this otherwise chaotic world, not only do they both have it, but they both have a few seasons back when it started where they were just unambiguous heroes. And then the, the show came back to that. And then decided to start taking it in a new direction for those characters. I, I, I guess I just wanted to ask, like, do, do you think there's something about the idea of returning to a show that sort of makes that happen? Because I've seen it in other shows as well, uh, where you want to say, oh, you really like this happy thing? Well, because we sort of now have to come back to it, uh, maybe years after the fact it's no longer it's no longer happy it's no longer bright it has more darkness and color to it in in a few different ways hmm. john do you have thing. anything on that no, no? I, that's a colin th- um, I, that's a colin thing for sure <laughs> i think lynch at least in fire walk with me had a sense that dale cooper was not what what his archetype would lead us to think he is because I think Cooper fundamentally misunderstands the significance of the ring and, and, and how when Laura takes the ring, she's bearing witness to something because Cooper earlier in that movie says, don't take the ring. And he, he seems to think that Laura's life is more important than the significance of her death and, and the, the sense of agency she has ironically enough, even as she dies with with Arrested Development, I think you're right. I think it's 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 something like Hurwitz almost 
arrived at this idea that Michael Bluth, but, but with all of that said, like there are so many moments in the first three seasons where it's, it's unambiguously obvious that Michael is not what he thinks he is. Um, but yeah, I, I take your point. Like, can you return to something and deploy, especially with a show like Arrested Development and Twin Peaks that traffics so much in nostalgia, at least for the fans, can you return to it without, I don't know, bringing a bit of darkness to it or or challenging it, right? So so because then I think you're, you're really thinking about, well, what does it mean to return to something? And I, I think John and I have talked about this a lot, that nostalgia is a feeling, a positive feeling for something that never existed, right? And so, yeah, I think maybe it's it's playing with those feelings a bit. It's interesting because there was a five-year gap between seasons five and four of Arrested Development and an eight-year gap between seasons four and three, which hmm. feel like they should be similar. They're, they're not that different, yeah. but four and three, that's a return. Five mm-hmm. and four, that's just like a continuation. And mm-hmm. there's some math there that I, I, I wonder if, if you can actually quantify of like, when can it be just like, no, no, it's not a nostalgia thing. We're just going to keep going. Uh, mm-hmm. Can it be <laughs> yeah. like one year seems fine. Five years, yeah. I guess, maybe. <laughs> I, I think, I guess it would be interesting to see what, um, what would happen if, if Lynch had been given a season three back in like 92 or whatever, if, mm-hmm. if he would have followed the same path of, of Cooper's, uh, you know, sort of downfall at the end of a season. I think that'd be very interesting to see. But yeah. I agree with you about about Michael. I mean, he uh I I think it made the show a lot more interesting when when season 4 opened up with Michael sort of at the the lowest he's been. Uh that made me really really want to watch it and then sadly a lot of episodes were just terribly bad. <laughs> but I, I thought that was a that. fascinating a fascinating arc for a character. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, you definitely saw Michael slowly become more like George Sr. And that maybe speaks to explaining how George Sr. was the way he was in the original seasons. Because maybe there was a one generation before that was pretty much the same as George Sr. was to Michael. And now at the end of season five, uh, Michael Sarah is old now. And... uh, Mm -hmm. So George Michael is arriving pretty much to where Michael was in season yeah. uh, one. And Michael's just about completely out of that. And, uh, th- you know, they're still trying the, their stuff. And maybe the act of still trying is what keeps them in that cycle. Because uh, you think that they're going to b- break the cycle. But I guess that's, you know, the literal name of the show is yeah. Arrested Development. So they're not going to. Maybe Buster actually being a... Real ass murderer changes things. <laughs> uh, a real well, ass even, murderer. <laughs> but even like even like someone like Job, who John and I talked about this. There are these moments when it seems like Job wants to profess. Excuse me, wants to profess that he's actually a gay or a queer character, and thinking about that as as breaking. Or or transcending this notion of arrested development, but then he just regresses right back as well. So there's something about this family, and I I think yeah, you could imagine this is a microcosm for a lot of families where the the Bluths, in particular, the Bluth children, have inherited so much 
privilege, whether it's it's financial, political, cultural, but it's also a show about how, yeah, they're also inheriting all of these awful qualities, this this sense that you must be a particular way and and just watching in particular the children grapple with that, but then ultimately realizing it's it's so hard, almost impossible to extricate themselves from it. When you were talking about Michael and George Sr., I was thinking about how this actually feels a lot like Coppola's Godfather, where where Michael just becomes everything that he says he he would never become. And it's not like there's one moment where it happens. It's it's these it's this series of transgressions. And yeah, I I think I think you're right. It's just it's it's really hard, it seems, to get outside of that cycle and, and the show seems to bear witness to that. I I just just as a, a weird aside, I've always kind of seen a little bit of my family in the Bluths. Um just Oh god, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Obviously not nearly as tragic and and cartoonish, but uh especially just because we grew up in, in Southern California. I have oh, okay. I, oh, okay. I I literally have a, a sister who's named Lindsay, and I'm, I'm Mitchell, which is almost Michael, which is a little weird, almost. That's uh, true, yeah. <laughs> uh, stuff not important. Anyway, <laughs> Twin Peaks. Uh, I hope your name is actually Mitchell instead of Mitchell. So, <laughs> you know, I I haven't actually seen my birth certificate in a long yeah, time. I should check on be. that. <laughs> <laughs> But so, but so you you feel okay. So, how like do you see your your family trafficking in these same sorts of ideas that that we just can't seem to get outside of of these extremely self destructive cycles? Is is that something you see too? Um, I I don't think my family is. To be clear. I love them. You know, we're not we're not at Michael leaving the family stage yet. I sure. mean, we'll see how long um, <laughs> if, if I need to go back home for for after school. We'll see how long quarantine sort of lets that happen. But uh, the thing that I think I, I I just see the most is is like the especially as I get older, the things that my dad would do that I thought like that is whack. I would never. <laughs> do that i'm like oh, i'm kind of starting to do that i don't know um yeah. uh and, and with my my sister and my mom i can kind of see that happening as well in 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 microcosms and and obviously we are um i think more affected by just our generation in culture time than mm-hmm. our our actual you know family repeating itself but there's there's some bit of it there and then just like weird things about like naming structures repeating through the family almost comedically that happens as well. But that's oh that's really not, yeah that's just a weird <laughs> statistical anomaly at that point. Sure. Um, <laughs> in Twin Peaks, I remember uh, messaging you on on Twitter about mm-hmm. just uh, some thoughts. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I think it's fun. It's, Twin Peaks is most fun when you don't think about whether or not Lynch uh, wants you to think about it. And you kind of just mm-hmm. like let yourself dive in and, and a- allow 
the theories to happen, which I think he does want. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I messaged <laughs> you uh, <laughs> a, a thought about Cooper as a mechanical character. Mm-hmm. Back, I, I, I related it, and Colin, you brought this up uh, right before we started recording, to something that James Paul Gee, who is a, a an education scholar, wrote about video games at one point, which is that uh, the world of a video game is expressly related to what your character has mechanics uh, to do. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I think the example I used at the time, which is a bad example, but it, it was just, I, I still think it's the thing that I think of now, It which is like, in, in Super Mario Brothers, you can run and you can jump and sometimes mm-hmm. you can shoot fire and those are your verbs. And, yeah. and that's that's about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if there's just a random phone booth in the middle of a Mario level, the, the player doesn't have buttons on a controller that would allow them to open up the door to that phone booth. I mean, that's step one. You can't even open the door. But then pick mm-hmm. up the phone, dial the phone, re- remember the phone number of a loved one, and have a conversation. None of that belongs to Mario as a character. And Twin Peaks really got me thinking about, um, obviously that's true in video games. Because you need to make a goal for the player. And like if you can't accomplish the goal with what you have in your hands in the controller... It just doesn't happen, so you can't beat the game. But Twin Peaks made me think about what if that same idea was applied to other mediums, other and mm-hmm. specifically like television, um, because Cooper feels like that to me so much. Um, there's the scene in I want to say episode two or three at the very beginning uh, where. Cooper and the whole sheriff department posse go outside into the forest, find a blackboard in the middle of the forest, as you do, and start throwing <laughs> rocks at bottles Yeah, while naming potential suspects for, um, for the murder of Laura Palmer. And none of it, I mean, it, it makes about as much sense as it sounds with me describing it. He... That's Cooper true. had a dream that that's a thing you can do. So he's like, this is a thing I can do. <laughs> um, and he buys into that so easily. He's like, I'm sure I can do this because I saw it in a dream. I, I've never talked about me trusting dreams before, but now you know uh, that we're doing it. And that to me feels like the world of Twin Peaks giving in to Cooper's verbs. Um hmm intensely like cooper has a certain set of skills and uh if they don't give him back his daughter no uh he's got a certain set of skills and (laughs) um he that's all he can do and he's assigned the goal for himself which is figure figure out the whole laura palmer thing Mm -hmm. and the world that he inhabits becomes twin peaks and um it feels even very video gaming on a mechanical level like that first scene in the first episode cooper is driving into town about halfway through the episode which would indicate that like everything that happened before the main character of the show came up 
Like, what is that? Is that that would to me feel like an opening cutscene of sure. a video game where now you're gi- giving uh, the player control right now when you see Cooper mm-hmm. in the car, and everything else was like, here's your briefing of what happened. There's old man found body wrapped in plastic, and uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> that was a pretty good pee. Yeah, that, yeah. that was a good pee. Yeah, I I do try, uh, <laughs> and, and and then sort of the game starts and and the world um is the playground for cooper and i i just wanted to know what you thought about that because that's sort of been the lens through which i've been viewing the show mm-hmm. for a while now wow. as, as like he's got some he's got some mechanics he's got some verbs and the nouns in the world sort of bend over backwards to make themselves mm-hmm. work for cooper Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a great read, man. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like the idea of the actual world itself not having any agency because it all has to succumb to whatever Cooper's doing. Like if Cooper were to approach somebody on the street, they'd have to have a list of sayings that he could hopefully elicit the right reaction from someone. And they're always there in their brain ready to give to him. So I like that read. I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a lot of, of, big mythological narratives do this and the interesting thing because like what is a batman story other than someone with a particular set of skills and boy he's he's lucky that criminals continue to commit crimes right because otherwise what's he punching but the thing that i find interesting <laughs> are those but those those moments when the world bends back a bit so for example i think that's part of what we see in part 18 is the world bending back. And we've spoken a lot about Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight because I think that's part of what the Joker does too. It's the world bending back against the particular set of skills that Batman as a character has. So I I, I agree with you. And what I like about this, Mitchell, again, is this idea that video games, and I think part of the problem is it's just inherent to the name – they at least nominally seem frivolous because they're just games, right? But I think taking video games seriously, not just the narratives of video games, but the mechanics of video games, and using them to help us better understand what people would traditionally describe as as perhaps, I don't think legitimate's the right word, but but like a novel or or a David Lynch film. And and using that and mapping that on, I think it actually reveals some interesting things about how narrative mechanics work because what is John and I have talked about this a lot. What is the Deus ex machina in a narrative other than the narrative recognizing it needs to to end or reconcile itself, but all of the parts and pieces, all the verbs, as you said, can't do it. So we need to bring this other thing in, almost like a, what are those called, those expansion packs or something? Like, we need to add a little something to this world to bring it all together. I, I think using video game language to talk about narrative, not not as a way of revealing how games work, but actually inverting it and using games as a way to think about how narrative works. I really dig that a lot because I, I think there's a lot to be learned. I, I think there's sort of the expansion of that. Like that, that would go through finding out who killed Laura Palmer, which sure. happens in the middle of season two. 
So even in the original run, there's another whole half of the season and and then an entire return season after that of like, okay, well, you're still here, Cooper, like you finished it, <laughs> like you did it. We, we let you we let you play the game like you, you were yeah. having a lot of fun. You fell in love with Twin Peaks. Um, and now we, I don't know who we is, just the world of Twin Peaks, I guess. Yeah. Are, just have to still exist for you. And, and that might, t- to me, that, that feels like why the world had to try to absorb Cooper in the Red Room or the, mm-hmm. the, the Black Lodge. Mm-hmm. Um, and also why uh, upon finding that that didn't work and Cooper's still just going to be like a really powerful force, why it had to supply them with a new goal of like, Hey, you can, you found out why it was a detective story before, but now it can be like a hero story. You can kill Bob, uh, if you do yeah. the right stuff and That's he does good. that too. Yeah. And then he's like, I, I fell in love with Twin Peaks so much, and my initial sort of time in Twin Peaks was um, in, in trying to solve Laura Palmer's death that maybe subconsciously the idea of the town and the idea of the girl became intertwined, and now he has to save the girl if it means, uh, you know, continuing to enjoy the thing that he enjoys. Um so maybe part 18 of the return is the world saying like, you know what? You can push as far as you want. And this is actually our breaking point. Mm-hmm. You, if you do this, you break twin peaks sure. and you go into a world where she can exist, but like, it's not going to be anything like it was before because just because you, you push too far. And that, that is to me like the only way that I can think about part 18 mechanically. Hmm. I think what's interesting about what you're saying is that the return almost feels like a JRPG with <laughs> this like cast of characters sort of coming together with their own special unique abilities. Collins, can you can you define that term for me? I'm so sorry. A, a I don't Japanese know what a J role, a, a, a Got Japanese it. Okay. role playing. <laughs> Final Fantasy is like, okay. so like awesome. So like, okay, thank you. Yeah, Final Fantasy seven, uh, like your Cloud Strife characters, like your Cooper uh, in the return, he finds these people that will essentially help him. Uh, what he thinks beat Bob, which he does, but then there's like the after credits scene where he continues on after he's fulfilled the final mission, but without getting like the Mitchums and Freddy uh, involved, then he can ever he can ever actually beat Bob. So that's a cool read, man. I I dig that. Makes me like the show a little bit more, Mister. You're doing a good job. <laughs> yeah. I, so as you were, I, I I completely agree with John Mitchell as as you were. Talking about this, I was thinking of a movie like The Truman Show. Have you seen The Truman Show with Jim Carrey? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. So because if if you use the kind of language you used, it's it's quite similar, but the difference is Truman becomes aware that he's in a game. And I think what that what that film ultimately misses, because because I yeah, I mean, it's actually a lovely end to a movie, but I think on a thematic level, it's deeply frustrating because Truman's decision seems to suggest that once he leaves the game, he's 
outside of of that kind of a matrix. And we know that's just not true, right? Leaving leaving the world of the Truman Show doesn't immediately fix his problems. He's not moving beyond some symbolic representation. And even when Ed Harris as God says, just stay in here with me, because there isn't anything out there for you, what he's really talking about is how don't think about leaving this world as somehow liberating yourself from a symbolic matrix because you're just entering a new one, but at least you have some awareness that you're in one here. So you have this big symbolic matrix and maybe you could have moments beyond it within, but don't think you could ever get beyond it. And what I like about almost what Cooper's doing, at every moment when he could have a Truman-like revelation, he rejects it and fights against it. And and that's actually even even though, yeah, I think the show's critiquing a character like Cooper, that's that's maybe the thing I like about it is that he wants to stay within this narrative where he's either trying to save Laura Palmer, kill Bob, whatever. He just wants to stay in the game. And I don't know how, as a video game scholar and developer, you you think about that. <laughs> uh I, I don't know about a scholar. But eh, whatever. Uh, just uh, hey, the, the um it, it, it's a it's a good point. I I think just wanting to stay in the game is interesting because there there's sort of the more psychological extreme of that, which would be potentially addiction, um, which is hotly debated of, of whether game addiction is the same kind of addiction as other kinds of addictions. Hmm. Um, so oh, I didn't know like, that. Okay. I I don't want to get into that because like that's yeah okay sure the science yeah. is literally not in I I I couldn't possibly guess of which way that'll end up, but people are are talking about it. Um, but so so there's if that is true though, if, if that kind of video game addiction sort of can extend, um, it, it, its powers maybe not to like the level of a drug addiction, which is a very chemical reaction, but maybe to the idea of of like a credit card addiction, mm-hmm. or uh. Or, or or maybe a sex addiction, something like that. Uh, it would it would ask, well, what are you actually trying to get out of it? If you're Cooper, if you're in this sort of situation that is game adjacent, um, mm-hmm. what, are you do you are are you just chasing the the rush of like the original mystery that you solved with your friend Sheriff Truman, and it had a very well defined goal of like. Hey, figure out who killed Laura Palmer. It was her dad crazy. Uh, like, you just want that again? Because I could see him wanting that again. I could see that being mm-hmm. sort of the cause of it. Or is it more like not recognizing that was the end and hmm. not seeing that for a finished thing and, and, and saying like, okay, well, I, I, I figured it out now that because magic and science fiction and time travel are all in the show now um maybe i can like actually fix it and maybe he saw that option as a continuation where it wasn't supposed to be or something to that effect i'd have to think about that more yeah well i think that's interesting because like that's we're at this point where who understands cooper and his motivations better us or Cooper, because I think we actually get his motivations a lot better than he does. I think that's, that's considering what I said before, I think that's the only caveat I would add is, is a character like Truman in the Truman show, at least 
compared to Cooper, has a little more awareness of what he's doing. Cooper doesn't seem to know at all what he's doing, but we as the audience know. And, and yeah, you're right. That's something to, to think about in a little more detail. Well, it's been amazing talking with you both uh, for the last hour. So I've had a great time and just thank you for coming on uh, the, the show and, and doing this. this has been really great. Thank you for having us. It's uh, absolutely flattered that you asked us. Uh, you have a very good podcast voice, 10 out of 10. <laughs> John Phelps, uh, you do too. Hey, thanks, man. Thank you. I, I I can't, really apparently I it. can't be on national news, but, you know, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, but why do? would you want to, you know? It's... That's true. That is true. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, really, thank you so much. No, thank you, Mitchell. I've I've always enjoyed talking to you on Twitter, and it was a pleasure to finally meet you properly through Zoom, which is how we meet everyone now, so... <laughs> Well, thank you very much. Likewise. Um, final thoughts. Twin Peaks, like 7 out of 10, do you think? Oh, oh 7 that's, out of that's, 10. That's good. I would say 7 out of 10. That's what I'll give it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. 7.1 out of 10. Oh, is yeah, that the, exactly. uh, is that the, it's charitable. not, it's not Will of Fortune. Is that um, <laughs> the price is right? I'm making the price is right determination. So, yeah. I'll wager $1 on Twin Peaks. So. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you so much. This has been the Super Jump Podcast. We will talk to you later. And remember, stay super!